Thank you, Miss Stacy and Dad and Roger Dale. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter number four. Now we're going to dig into this last chapter of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. We looked a little bit at verse one last time. And just to get you back into the groove since we've been going back and forth between Colossians and John and then last week's Christmas message from Matthew. Just to get you back in the groove what Paul has been teaching, remember what the overall thrust of the back end of this book has been. That the new man in Christ is different. Remember back from chapter 3, the the person who has come to Jesus Christ, believed the gospel on his terms of repentance and faith is described there in chapter 3 as the new self. And other translations, and you may have one in your hand, say the new man. And you'll remember that We studied in chapter 3 how the new man puts off the old patterns of the old life and then the new man puts on new patterns of the new life that he has in Christ. Remember how the new man lets the the peace of Christ rule in his heart. And he lets the, the word of Christ dwell in him richly, as those verses say. He seeks to do everything that will honor and bring glory to God with his life. And throughout chapter 3, Paul took us through the personal life of the new man there in verses 5 to 17. And then down in verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, which we looked at last time, how the new man has some things that are changed in terms of his relationship to the family. Remember, we talked about the wives and the the husbands and the children. So it's been the the characteristics of the new man in a, in a personal portrait, if you will, and, and then the new man in relation to his family. And now as we come to chapter four, starting in verse two, the third thing that we're going to study about the new man is the relationship that he has with people that are outside the family. And I'm speaking of the family of God. In fact, the object here is going to be our relationship toward unbelieving people. Notice verse 5. You'll get the flavor here in these next couple of verses here in the last chapter. Verse 5 of chapter 4. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. That means outside the adopted by grace family of God. Because you know well as I do, that the watching world outside of Christ is watching us, looking at us. 
They're evaluating Christianity itself on the basis of what they hear from the supposed new man, what they see in his actions. That's the thrust here. Look at the end of verse five. He, he says, making the most of the opportunity. And then in verse six, he says, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. That's to everybody in your Monday to Saturday life. And so the focus here is gonna, is gonna really zero in on how we speak. He's gonna demonstrate that the new man needs to have a new mouth. Now, as I hear some hmms, Automatically, we know as Christians, we all have struggles and problems in this area, right? As Vody Vacham says, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. <laughs> that starts with me. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So in a general sense, if you have a renewed heart, you should have a renewed mouth. And I can tell you, now listen to me, in a very general sense, when I think back to some of the kinds of conversations that I used to have before I was saved as a teen and on up through my late 20s as an adult, I can honestly stand here today and report to you that I never have those conversations now. <laughs> never. Oh, if we had any of them recorded, you wouldn't even want me to be your preacher, even though you knew I was saved. For sure, we all struggle with our tongues as Christians in our struggle with the flesh. We, we read about that this morning. But in a general sense, there should be, after we come to Christ, some major changes that happen in our speech. Paul knows this, and that's why he says so much about it in his writings. For example, in Ephesians 4, He's there again talking about the same subject with the same language. He's talking about putting on the new man. Remember all the parallels there are between Colossians and Ephesians. We've shown those a couple of times throughout the study of this book. But look there in verse 25 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. And then down in verse 29, he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. I love that phrase. So that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, we all know it isn't easy to control the mouth. And that's why there's so much emphasis on it in the Bible. For sure, we can say this. 
that the tongue is both the best and the worst of us. I think we can all agree on that. Just for a minute, just to pinpoint that, that let's think back to James 3, starting in verse 3. Remember, we studied this. Now, if if we put the bits in the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, redirect their whole body as well. Verse 4, look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds and still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So he's emphasizing the fact that a very small thing can have a very large effect, right? And then verse 5, even so, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Now, how could that language be any stronger? Huh? You think he's trying to get his point across? He goes on to talk about taming animals. Think about all the animals we can tame a lion. You tame a tiger. You go to SeaWorld and see them tame killer whales, which is fascinating to me. Verse 8, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. In other words, James is simply pointing out the power of the tongue, the damage that the tongue does, and the inconsistency of the tongue. The same tongue that blesses a minute later curses. And I think the Bible is pretty clear about the reality that probably the truest indicator of the spiritual condition of a person is their mouth. John MacArthur says the unredeemed mouth is the gate through which depravity exists. What was the first thing old Isaiah said? When he saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up in the Train of his robe filled the temple with glory. He said, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean, what? Lips. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips. That's the first thing he said. Now, I have a list and it's not exhaustive. But just to give you quickly a biblical description of the unredeemed mouth. I have a list of Bible verses with short explanations for each that I could give you. With each one of these, I'm going to give you. But for time's sake, I'm just going to shoot them at you like a machine gun rapid fire. If you want these verses, you can get them from me later. All these come from the Bible. And that was metaphorical, of course, with the machine gun. The unredeemed mouth speaks evil, lust, deceit, curses, lies, oppressions, twist, 
and perverts. Speaks destruction, vanity, flattery, foolishness, madness, babbles, idly speaks, and every one of those idle words people will have to give an account for, speaks boastfully, evil plots, false doctrine, hatred, swearing, filthy communication, and gossip. Each one of those comes from a Bible verse attached to it. I'm just trying to save some time here, get them rapid fire to you. You get the picture, right? And guess what? That's not an exhaustive list. Okay? What's my point? My point is the Bible has a tremendous volume of information to say about an unconverted mouth. And none of those things should be true of a Christian. A Christian mouth. Now, now let me flip it and give you the same kind of list that describes a redeemed mouth. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. Each of these has a Bible verse attached to it. I'm just wanting to get through this to make my point, but this is straight Bible. A redeemed mouth confesses sin, speaks that which is edifying, confesses Christ as Lord, speaks truth, speaks what is good, speaks God's law. Our mouths praise God, teach truth, bless others, speaks the things of God, speaks wisdom, speaks kindness. Our mouths speak the things that bring about peace. And so I could go on and on. But there kind of you have a, a whole theology of the mouth from both sides. And what a difference there is between those two sides, right? So all of that lays the foundation for our text. And Paul in the next set of verses is going to lay out Four kinds of speech in this next set of verses. Prayer, proclamation, performance, and perfection. Four kinds of speech that should be present in the lifestyle of a Christian. And we're only going to deal with the first one today, prayer. So look at Colossians 4, 2. Devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, as you know, we take prayer very seriously here at Providence Baptist Church. I've preached about it. We've talked about it. And we are extremely committed to having it happen here corporately every single Wednesday night. Prayer really is the most important speech that your mouth will ever utter in your life. Prayer is the most important conversation that you will ever hold in your life. It's really the most important expression of the new life. There is no more important divinely appointed weapon against the wiles of the adversary and the rest of the fallen angels than prayer. It's your greatest weapon. Prayer is the vehicle for the confession of sin, which we should all do daily. Prayer is one of the means that we use to pour out 
our praise to God when we're praying. Prayer is the voice that we use to, to, to cry out to God in the times of our deepest and greatest need. Prayer is the intercession of the concerned Christian who calls on God on behalf of another who is in trouble. Prayer is also just the simple conversation of the adopted by grace child of God with the Father who loves them. And as you know, we are always to pray according to the will of God, to pray consistent with God's mind and God's will and God's purposes. But let's focus in on the first part of verse 2, which says, devote yourselves to prayer. Now, this is an area that we all, always have to be working on. All of us. We all need work in the area of what this is describing right here. Devote yourselves to prayer. Because he's not just saying pray. With this word, devote yourselves to prayer. He's saying stay at it. Other versions say continue in it. The thrust here is perseverance in prayer. It's in line with that thought in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. First Thessalonians 5.17, you know it well. Pray without ceasing. In Acts 6, they gave themselves continually to prayer. At the end of Romans 12, 12, it uses the same word, devoted to prayer there at the end of the verse. In Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. All of those convey the same idea. Now, you can't go around constantly praying every single minute of every single day because you got things to do. I mean, if you're at work and you're just constantly praying and you're not doing your work, you're going to get fired, right? That's not what these verses mean. That's not what they're getting at. So what does it mean? It means in a, in a general sense to live your life every day with a God consciousness, okay? The idea is, is to live in such a way that you see everything that happens in relation, in reference to God and his purposes in this life. I often refer to it another way. Living out your life every day with eternal perspective and keeping that as much as you can in your thinking, in your mindset while you're doing whatever you're doing. And that's the broad view, but it works itself out specifically when it comes to the subject of prayer this way. When something goes down, when something bad happens, the first thing that you think about doing is praying. That's what we're talking about here. When a person's need 
comes to your mind in your thinking while you're at work or while you're out in the backyard or whatever it's doing, you just immediately stop right there and you pray for that person. This is what we're talking about. Just even a little short prayer. Uh, if you get a text from our text line where we send out the group text, uh, so-and-so is in the hospital and needs this. You stop right there. Whatever you're doing, you just pray a little prayer to God. Lord, please bless uh, whoever has got this deal, and I just pray you'd heal them. And then you just move on with your day. It's just automatic for you. It's the first thing that comes to your mind. And then you actually do it. Now, those are those are big, broad, 10,000 feet views of this subject. But now I want to narrow it down. And, and I want to create a little tension here about this subject of prayer that we find in verse 2. Okay? Notice that word, devote. As I said in other translations, it's the word they we find continue. The Greek word, the root word in Greek here is kartere. My Greek professor John MacArthur says it comes from a noun that means strong. Now, the verb means to be steadfast, to endure, to hang in there. But the word used here for devote is proskartere. And I've learned over the years, even though I don't know a lick of Greek, I have learned over the years that when you add a preposition in front of a verb in the Greek, that that intensifies the Greek verb. So if the word kartere means to be strong and steadfast, proskartere means to be super strong, super steadfast. It's, 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 it's to the max. It's strong perseverance. I'll give you an example. It's used of Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty seven. By faith, he left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. Proscartere, there's the word, as seeking, as seeing him who is unseen. What does it mean? It means he hung in there. He stuck with it. So, to devote yourselves to prayer here in verse 2 is a, is a strong commitment to something where you're steadfast and you endure and you don't bail out on it and you don't quit. It actually tells us in Acts, Cornelius prayed continually. And that doesn't mean that he prayed every single second of every single day. That's not the idea. But it is the idea that daily, regularly, continually, Staying at it, making it a normal part of the fabric of your life with an, uh, an eternal perspective, devoting yourself to prayer. That's the idea here. In addition to regular daily times or Maybe if you're like me, that morning daily time that's at the same time every day, in addition to that, you're praying for things throughout the day. Like I said, when things go down, you pray. When you think about certain things, you pray. You don't have to pray out loud. You pray in your mind. One commentator says this, 
The word implies not just continuity, but earnestness. Now, for those who do know how to read Greek, Kittle has the classic work on the definition of Greek words, and he says this word means to be courageously persistent. I love that. You find the same term in Acts 2.42. Look what it says. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So, what am I saying? I'm saying to you that this is more than just having an eternal perspective throughout your day. It is that, but this is zero in, being deliberate and consistent and regular and often in your praying. That's what I'm saying this means. It's, it's the idea of storming the gates of heaven with your praying. And guess what? It's even the idea of putting up a struggle. What do I mean? One writer speaking of God said, this is not a cosmic teddy bear we're cuddling up to when we pray. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, one of the children, and one of my favorite lines, and I have many favorite lines in that classic, speaking of Aslan, he's not a tame lion. I love that. Another commentator, Jacques Ellul, says this, that prayer for persons living in the technological age must be combat, and not just combat with the evil one, with one's society, or even one's divided self, though it is all of these, but his combat with God. He goes on to say, we put struggle with him like Jacob did at Peniel, where he earned his name Israel, and Israel means he who strives with God. We too must be prepared to say, I will not let you go until you bless me. Do you pray like that? That's what we're talking about. Now, in this combat, Elul goes on to caution. We pray like that, we must be ready to bear the consequences. Jacob's thigh, he says, was put out of joint and he went away lame. Whoever wrestles with God in prayer puts his whole life at stake, he writes. Now we're going deep. And all he's simply saying in these quotes is true prayer, when it gets down deep, is a matter of struggling and grappling with God. We have hard things that happen in our lives. All of us do. And prayer is a matter of Proving to God the deepest concern of your heart as you struggle in prayer and strive in prayer with God. Yes, it's having a God consciousness. Yes, it's having eternal perspective, as I said earlier. But in those realities, it goes much deeper than that. It's pouring out to God what you believe is that what would most honor Him. It's praying struggling with God for those lost relatives. You can hear David doing this anytime you want. Just open the Psalms. All over the Psalms, he's just pouring out his heart over 
and over again. Prayer is to be a persistent, courageous struggle. And you might come out limping like Jacob. Let me tell you, you get to praying, God, all I want is for your will to happen in my life. I just want you to make me to be what you want me to be. Let me tell you something that can be a dangerous prayer right there. Because God has many different ways of answering that prayer in different people's lives. Again, John MacArthur says this, there is a tension between claiming and persisting on God's power and God's grace and at the same time waiting on his will. But it is not resolved by holding your persistence. It is resolved by accepting his answer. And that means whatever his answer is. And when you consider prayer from these perspectives, I think it's safe to say that we can all up our game in praying, right? Now let's move on here in verse two. Paul says next, keeping alert in it. Now in its most general sense, this means to stay awake when you're praying. You can't pray when you're sleeping. You ever been in a prayer meeting and everybody's eyes are closed and you hear somebody? <laughs> hmm? Jesus caught the disciples sleeping when they were supposed to be praying, remember? But the thought here is, is broader than that, okay? It's along the line of what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 7. Look at that. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The idea is knowing the priorities. Be alert and looking for the things that you ought to be praying for. Now, we're all guilty of praying in generalities, all of us, starting with me. God bless the church. God, please bless the missionaries out there on the missionary field. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that for sure. We should do that. But here in verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, is getting at the idea that if you're going to be alert in it and consistent in it and really devoting yourself to it in the ways I described earlier, then you ought to be really very clear on the things that you are praying for. And that brings up the idea that I talk to you all the time about. Being specific in your prayers. Being very Specific, the regular attenders of our Wednesday night prayer meetings can testify to some of the incredible answers to very specific prayer that we have witnessed. We heard one this morning in Sunday school from Stacy. As I always say, you should never take that for granted. We prayed for that, right? From the smallest to the biggest request. MacArthur again says, you'll never be persistent with God about something you're not concerned about. And you'll never get concerned about something until you know what something needs to be concerned about. So you got to know what it is. That's why we need to be keeping alert in our praying. That's what it means. Now, there's one last thought here for today. 
Look, at, <clears throat> look again at verse two. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And that, of course, is the right attitude, right? Even when we're wrestling with God over something, we should be thankful. We should be thankful that no matter what, no matter what, he's always going to do what is best. This is the fifth time in Colossians that thankfulness has been mentioned. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Let me tell you something. I don't care how rough things might get in the ups and downs of life. As Christians, we can always be thankful far more than any of the many things that we are to be thankful for, we can always be thankful most for our salvation. Whatever is number two on the thankful list in your life is great and it's fantastic, but I want to tell you there's a major gap between number one and number two and everything else down the line of thanksgiving in all of our lives. That should be the first thing you thank God for when you wake up in the morning. I am justified. I am safe from the wrath of God. There is now no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. And there are some other very big spiritual things to be thankful for before you ever get to the temporal things that you need to be thankful for. How about spiritual growth in your life? Huh? In the process of sanctification. How about fellowship that you have with Christ? How about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of you? How about the Holy Spirit that illuminates the word of God to you and enables you to understand it? How about your fellowship that you have with the rest of the body of Christ? Remember Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Be thankful that you're in the family of God. Be thankful that you're in this local family of God at this local church. Remember Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, to God the Father. Be thankful for the privilege that you have to serve God. It's a privilege to serve the Lord. And we could just go on and on, joy, peace, purpose, meaning in your life, and that. Not an exhaustive list for sure, but that gives you some flavor to understanding Colossians 4.2, be devoted to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Always when you're praying, that's your attitude. Because we have the guarantee that God is going to answer our prayers in accord with what's best for us. And I have learned that what's best for us, according to our thinking, isn't always what's best for us. We may think it is, but it's really not. We should always want what's best for us according to what God thinks is what's best for us. I pray that way now. God, whatever your definition of what's best for me here, that's what I want, even when sometimes it doesn't seem like it to us at the time. And our attitude when God answers prayer, 
No matter whether it's yes, no matter whether it's no, no matter whether it's maybe, no matter it's wait, should be. Man, I'm just thankful he's listening. I'm just thankful he's able to answer all my prayers and do exceedingly abundantly above all I could ever ask for or even think about. And of course, we could also go down a long list of what God provides. When Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, he was talking about the temporal needs of life. He wasn't talking about loaves of bread. And for all of us in this room, every day, he is providing for us far above all our needs. The list in the, in the temporal, physical realm is really long when you just sit and think about it. I was thinking about this in the, this morning in the shower at my hot water. So I was, I was taking a hot shower and I ran to Google and I said, how many people in the world don't have running water? Listen to this. Just in America, 2.2 million people are without running water of any kind in America. 2 billion people have in the world, 30 6% have access, no access to safe drinking water. 46% have no adequate sanitation in the world. How about us? Do we not have a lot to be thankful for? You know I mean, just imagine if you didn't have no running, if you don't have no running water, you can't have no hot water, right? Now, let me give you one more. Just to wrap all this up, we read in, oh, and let me just say this though, even though we have just above our needs, Jesus does want you to continue to pray for those needs and about those needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Keep it coming, Lord, because I'm relying on you. You're using my work to get it done, but keep it coming. He wants you to continue to pray that way. But let me give you one more just to wrap it up. We read this in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, you have to understand. No matter what the answer is, no matter how God works, no matter if we come out of that struggle just like Jacob and our thigh is out of joint and we're limping, no matter if it cost us our very lives as it does in countries across this planet right now. There was 300 killed in Nigeria for, the, for Christ by Muslim terrorists this past week. No matter what, we can come away and say, when it's all said and done, the victory is mine. Because God promises us in Romans 8, 28, that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So no matter what goes down, no matter what happens in the end and the final analysis of all things, we win. 
2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. You may not always get what you ask for. You may not always get what you think is best for you because God knows what he's got for you is better than what you asked for, even though you might not understand it at the time. And in the end, what he's got for you is better than anything your brain can imagine right now in this life. So Paul is telling us something very important about prayer in this verse. He's saying, look, you need to be devoted to prayer. You need to be alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. I mean, when you pray, I mean pray. Get serious with it. Get in there and wrestle with it. Get in there and be persistent in it. And don't let him go until he blesses you. Even if that doesn't happen until you die. Let's pray. Father, we do pray now. You've commanded us to pray. Our praying demonstrates our utter and absolute complete need of you every moment of every single day. That's what prayer does. Demonstrates how weak we are, how needy we are, how much we need you. So Lord, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. I pray today that as we've studied this verse, that not only would our understanding of what it means to be devoted to prayer be deepened, but that we would carry this understanding out into our lives and that we would pray in a more devoted way, all to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.